Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into Christopher West's work, Fill These Hearts, which is a series of reflections on theology of the body. And I just want to continue to thank you, all of you who have been sending your questions about this great and wonderful topic that is theology of the body. If it is not our night on Pope Francis, this certainly is our most popular night, uh, that night which receives the most questions, which is to be expected for sure. Because when you start putting those two words together, God and sex, well, it's going to be provocative. It's going to lead to a lot of questions. And so we are in this work, Fill These Hearts, and we're in section two. Now, section two is about design, right? The first section was about desire, what we long for, what we ache for. This section, design, is about what we were created for, huh? This section essentially has put forth that underlining question of theology of the body. What does the very design of our bodies, as male and female, tell us about God's plan in our lives? So, we are going to wrap up this section, really focusing in on how to best answer that question, certainly with Christopher West. Uh, this chapter, chapter 10, which is titled The Designs of Redemption. Okay, The Designs of Redemption. By way of footnote here, um, Derek was going to join me this evening. He will for sure be with me next week, and uh, hopefully Chris Seibert will be able to join us as well. Uh, with that, uh, chapter 10, The Designs of Redemption. Now, typically, Christians present Christ's death on the cross as the price that had to be paid for humanity's sin. The wages of sin is death, and Christ paid that price for us. That indeed is an integral aspect of our redemption for which we should be eternally grateful, obviously. But the designs of redemption are more manifold than Christ paying the debt of sin, as awesome as that truly is. One of the most important reasons Christ humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross, that great Christological hymn that comes to us from Philippians 2, uh, verses 6 to 11. My dear friends, if you have time to meditate upon the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, please take time to do so. So rich, so rich, and certainly at the heart, at the heart of that chapter is this great Christological hymn, and at the heart of the Christological hymn are those words, Christ humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. Okay, so one of the most important reasons he does this is to show us that God is not who we thought he was, right? He's not a tyrant who wants to dominate us and leave us to starve in our hunger. God is a loving Father who wants to provide for us, who wants to feed us, who wants to satisfy our hunger beyond our wildest imaginings. Even when we have doubted Him, put Him to the test, and spoken against Him, 
consider here Psalm 78, verses 15 and following. In their hearts, they put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. They even spoke against God. They said, Is it possible for God to prepare a table in the desert? Yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the gates of heaven. He rained down manna for their food and gave them bread from heaven. As the Bread of Life discourse reminds us, my friends, Christ is the true bread come down from heaven. That satisfies our every desire. That satisfies our every ache. That satisfies our every longing. And this same Christ is God's response to our pride. I love this line from Christopher West. In Christ, man who made himself God encounters God who made himself man. Huh? Unrivaled self-importance and pride encounters unrivaled self-emptying and humility. My dear friends, think about this critically. Man, a mere speck in the universe, considered equality with God something at which to grasp. Whereas Christ, although he was God, did not consider equality with God something at which to grasp, but emptied himself and came as a servant. Now that, again, is what lies underneath that great Christological hymn, Philippians 2, verses 6 to 7. He came as the bread of life. He came to be eaten as food. And as such, we are made to reflect upon infinity as food. Christopher West reflects on this. Eating always involves death. To satisfy the belly of one life, another life has to be sacrificed. We tend to lose sight of the sacrificial nature of eating when we buy pre-butchered bloodless chicken in nicely packaged plastic wrap, but it's a basic fact. <laughs> and it's even true of fruits and vegetables. Their life must be plucked or uprooted to sustain other life. What is Christopher West talking about here? Well, my dear friends, what is true and revealed in the natural world becomes a prism from which to better understand how God works supernaturally. Even if it at times is paradoxical, it remains a prism, a lens from which to see how God works in the supernatural. That being said, what kind of food could possibly satisfy our hunger for the infinite? Is it possible for infinity to become food? For those of us who are Catholic, maybe we don't ask this question. We have just taken the Eucharist for granted, but I think it's time we start asking these kinds of questions. What kind of food could possibly satisfy our hunger for the infinite? And is it possible for infinity to become food? This is the full-bodied Christian proposal in a nutshell, that infinity itself has become food for us in order to satisfy our hunger for the infinite. Bread has come down from heaven, and whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is Christ's flesh given for the life of the world. My dear friends, faith accepts what our senses cannot perceive. In the Eucharist, the infinite one has freely sacrificed himself as food for us. And in so doing, as Christopher West puts it, Christ has turned the logic of the food chain on its head. You know, we are willing to take a lot of things on faith 
the fact that Christ rose from the dead, the fact that Christ healed the lame man, the fact that Christ performed all of the miracles that sacred scripture said he performed. And yet, when we start reflecting into the Gospel of John chapter 6 and the great bread of life discourse, where he says explicitly, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no life in me, we say, that's too much. And in doing so, we echo those who are closest to him. This is why they picked up their bags and left at the end of John chapter 6, right? What am I getting at? Christ is offering to us this most profound invitation that, that what is infinite has become finite so that we might be drawn into the infinite. It is an invitation. Remember what the word invitation means. Invitatio, to summon and to challenge. To summon and to challenge. A disarming summoning, if you will. One that leads you to accepting the challenge. But if we do not have faith, which allows us to walk through that door, then is it possible to respond to this great invitation? We have to pray for an increase in faith that we might indeed respond. And in so doing, build up that most concrete act and virtue of faith, which is trust. Mm. I love this piece from Christopher West here. <laughs> he says, the little guy always dies so the big guy can live. That's the logic of the food chain. Big fish eat little fish, much to the little fish's chagrin. But in the Christ event, the big fish freely dies in order to offer himself as food for us minnows. Right when the big fish shows up and we think we're about to be swallowed alive, the big fish says, no. You have it all wrong. I want you to eat me. Truly, I desire to feed you, not eat you. Stop persisting in your unbelief. Believe and live. Open wide your mouth, and I will fill it. Christ's entire mission is to save us from the lie that the satisfaction of our fundamental hunger is up to us. And to what length he goes... You don't believe in the gift of God, Christ asks. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. And his flesh is real food. His blood is real drink, as John 6.55 reminds us. Christ comes to us as the finest wheat to be ground into flour and baked into bread for us to eat unto satiation. He comes, as Christopher West puts it, as the juiciest grapes to be crushed in the wine press so that we might drink his gift unto intoxication. Remember those words, whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is Christ's promise. This is Christ's promise. How about Isaiah 55 verses 1 to 2? All you who are thirsty come without pain and without cost, drink wine and milk. Why spend your money, Isaiah says, for what is not bread, for what fails to satisfy? Follow me, and you shall delight in rich fare. Incidentally, my friends, this whole language of uh, this is my body which will be given up for you, the Greek word used to translate the Hebrew or Aramaic was soma, instead of sarks. Sarks means flesh, 
and would certainly refer to Jesus' corporal body given on the cross, while soma is much broader and refers to the whole person, mind, soul, will, as well as the corporal body. Thus, soma is much like the word body in everybody or somebody in English. It might therefore be roughly translated as person or self. Think of it. If we substitute the word self for body in the Eucharistic words, we obtain what? This is my whole self given up for you. This is remarkably close to our Lord's definition of love when he speaks to the gift of self. Greater love has no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in the Eucharist, Jesus is not only giving us his whole self, his whole person, he is also giving us his love, his unconditional love. That is a love that cannot be exceeded. How powerful is that? When we receive the Eucharist, why is it so satisfying? Because we are receiving body, blood, soul, and divinity. Remember how I've talked about God holding nothing back, right? He just doesn't save the world with a drop of his blood. No. If there are five and a half to six quarts of human blood to give, then he has five and a half to six quarts of human blood to donate, to sacrifice, because his sacrifice is total, is absolute. Amen to that. Okay, so the more we treasure God's promise in our hearts, the less inclined we will be to grasp at satisfaction apart from God and his plan for us. You know, the Psalms are so powerful. If I've already noted the importance of reading <laughs> chapter 2 in Paul's letter to the Philippians, sit down and read the Psalms. In fact, I would highly encourage you to go through all 150 Psalms and to just pray with them. Pray with them in light of everything we have talked about as it relates to theology of the body as it relates to being satisfied. Consider Psalm 119, verse 11. I treasure your promise in my heart, lest I sin against you. In Psalm 73, apart from you, I want nothing on earth. My body and my heart faint for joy. God is my possession forever. This was the disposition of Christ, who saves us from our plight, not only by becoming the bread and wine we desire, but also by living through that temptation to grasp at satisfaction without ever giving into it. As Scripture reminds us, He was tempted as we are, but without sinning. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Earlier this week, I was talking about the temptation in the desert, and it is fitting that we return to the temptation of the desert here. Why? Well, after fasting for 40 days in the desert, Jesus was hungry. You needn't be hungry any longer with the temptation, right? If you're the son of God, feed yourself. Does this sound familiar? The new Adam is here facing the same test that the first Adam faced. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. God promised he'd provide for you, didn't he? 
I'll give you everything you want if you worship me. We worship whatever we think will satisfy our ache, our hunger, our yearning. That is an earmark of the culture of death. Again, an earmark of the culture where there's an absence of true love, true self-donation. And we all slip into it, do we not? The tempter is always trying to divert our desire away from God's design in order to keep us from our destiny. That's a line from Christopher West there. Beautiful. Remember what the word Satan means. The first time Satan arrives on the scene in the Old Testament, he receives this name that translates to divert, huh? to throw a pebble in the middle of the road and have you go off the beaten path. He encourages those side glances. He encourages you to follow those things that are trivial as opposed to God himself. Christopher West continues, in short, he says, here's what you want. God's not going to satisfy you. I am. He always promises to alleviate our hunger, fear, and poverty with satisfaction, security, and supply. My dear friends, in the desert, and even more so we can say on the cross, Christ stared human hunger, fear, and poverty in the face. He felt it to the depths, and he refused to grasp at fulfillment apart from the Father's providence. In other words, he refused relief for his suffering. Temptation always offers relief from suffering. If you don't believe that, go to Matthew 27, 40. If you are the Son of God, then what? Come down from that cross. If Christ had done so, in the language of John Paul II, he would have rejected his posture of receptivity before the Father and the second Adam would have committed the sin of the first Adam all over again. Christopher West continues here. In this context, it makes sense why suffering means continued receptivity. Why? Because Christ stayed in the ache and maintained faith in the gift. You see, he accepted fully the abject poverty of the human condition and his complete and utter dependence on the Father amidst, amidst the worst imaginable onslaught of temptations to grasp at satisfaction and relieve his sufferings. No, he said, and I love this piece from Christopher West. I will not deny my posture of receptivity before my father. I will not grasp to feed my hunger. I know who my father is and my food is to do his will. I will trust. I will not put him to the test. I will not come down from this cross. I will worship him and him alone. For he is my inheritance and my cup. He alone will give me my reward. He will not be long in satisfying the desires of my heart. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Into your hands I commend the satisfaction of my desires. Beautiful. John Paul II once wrote that, if the agony on the cross had not happened, the truth that God is love would have been unfounded. Think about that. If the agony on the cross had not happened, the truth that God is love would have been unfounded. In other words, Christ's prayer of agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
shows us that God is truly with us in our agony. If the Son of God is right with us when we feel abandoned by God, in our unsatisfied hunger, in our ache, in our suffering, then we are not abandoned by God in our hunger, in our ache, and in our suffering. For Jesus is with us right here. I think I noted this last week. We often say, man, this is so excruciating what I'm going through. I cannot do this. This is impossible. God says, you're right. It is impossible because what is impossible cannot be done alone. We are not to take on God-sized problems with man-sized resolutions. And oh, by the way, what's excruciating is excruces from the cross. It is necessary that you share in my sufferings, as Colossians 1.24 and 1 Peter 4.13 reminds us. Huh? Christ's crucifixion, his staying on the cross and refusing to come down, demonstrates what? That he trusted the Father completely. He remained in his poverty and total dependence until the end. But what testimony do we have that Christ's trust was not in vain, that the Father was actually trustworthy? Huh? On the first day of the week, also known as the eighth day, the day of the new creation and the day of the Son, S-U-N, Christ left his grave clothes behind and came forth from the earth as a new Adam, a new creation. Huh? Paragraph 657 in the Catechism says this, The empty tomb and the linen cloths lying there signify in themselves that by God's power Christ's body had escaped the bonds of death and corruption. Beautiful. Many of us know that everything in the Christian faith hinges on the resurrection of Christ. Indeed, as Paul reminds us, if Christ is not raised from the dead, our Christian faith is in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. If Christ is not raised from the dead, Christ is not to be trusted. If Christ is not raised from the dead, God has abandoned us in our desire for the fullness of life. And man, what does that mean? It's up to us. <laughs> Right? To do whatever we can to satisfy our hunger. And how does that work out? Huh? <laughs> Not very well for any of us. This is why Paul says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul knows better in his great faith, and he's teaching us something. Huh? The importance of trust. Because if Christ is raised from the dead... This means our cry for the fullness of life amidst so much pain and agony has been what? Answered, right? It means there is no hell we might pass through that Christ has not opened to life, opened to redemption. It means there is no such things as a hopeless situation. Because when we are going through that hopeless situation, which we define as excruciating, Christ looks to us, excuses from the cross and he says i give you hope it means there really is a banquet freely offered to us from above that my friends can indeed satisfy our hunger christopher west has a powerful close here in christ's death and resurrection the wheat has been ground the grapes have been crushed and heavenly bread and wine have issued forth 
infinite satisfaction in this heavenly wedding feast awaits us. However, we must learn to realign our desire for this feast toward this feast. That's what sexual morality and all morality from the Christian perspective is all about. Now, earlier I had mentioned that verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we were talking about it in the context of God identifying himself with man totally and entirely. Well, there's also another context, a very rich context. He is quoting Psalm 22 that reads, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 was a Todah hymn. It was a hymn sung during the Todah feast, the Todah rite, which is the corporate rite, if you will, of Passover. And it was a, a feast that was always celebrated before you were to go into battle. Now, when you celebrated this feast, you were assured victory. So there was the sense of thank offering, that you were going to claim victory over your adversary, even in the face of the greatest trial. So here is Christ on the cross saying, what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he is the new Lamb of God. He is the new Torah, the new thank offering. And he claims victory over the adversary. And he does so how? By being obedient to the deepest mystery of our faith. Where there is life, there is first death. Amen. As we wrap up our time together this evening, I would like to turn our attention to what is about to take place here in the next week and a half, two weeks, and that is the World Meeting of Families that, as many of us know, is going to coincide with the visit of Pope Francis here to the States. He will be visiting Philadelphia, New York, and Washington, D.C. The World Meeting of Families, again, is going to take place in Philadelphia. And I thought we would close with a prayer for the World Meeting of Families, um, especially tonight, because the subject matter we discuss, my friends, is so essential to our families. We are called to internalize this subject matter that it might not only enrich our marriages, but in so doing, enrich our everyday family life. So let us pray these words together. God and Father of us all, in Jesus, your Son and our Savior, you have made us your sons and daughters in the family of the church. May your grace and love help our families in every part of the world be united to one another in fidelity to the gospel. May the example of the Holy Family, with the aid of your Holy Spirit, guide all families, especially those most troubled, to be homes of communion and prayer, and to always seek your truth and live in your love. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, pray for us. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.